Good morning, again. Um, we're going to start in John chapter 1. We're going to be kind of all over the place today in the Gospels, so get ready to turn some pages. Um, we're going to talk about Peter. I'm going to talk to you about Peter today. I'm really happy to tell you a bit about this guy, Peter. Um, it's the last day of the year. It's the last Sunday of the year, of course. We're reminded at the end of the year and at the beginning of the next that the Lord himself likes to take things and make them new. He makes all things new. All who are in Christ are new creations. It may come as somewhat of a surprise to, to us that a person who is eternal could relish the new, but it's good that we remind ourselves that our eternal God is eternally creative, making sunrise after sunrise without growing weary. And in, in 1 Peter 1 verse 3, Peter says that we have been born again to a living hope. And as saints of God who have been born again, we are testaments to this fact that God creates new things. He does new things. He removes old, worn-out, sin-weary things. And there's no one better to tell us this than Peter himself, a man made new. Uh, so let's, let's pray and um, we'll get into this. Jesus, uh, we thank you for saving men like Peter and, and, and men and women like us. We thank you for your word um, that, that does give us uh, examples and things written for our learning, but it, it, it does so much more than provide examples. We see your great grace that is greater than all our sin. We see the richness of forgiveness. We see the power of our creator, God, who makes all things new. So we pray uh, that we would have new eyes um, to see the truths of the gospel in your word. And we pray for a sensitivity to your spirit, for quiet hearts that are able to hear your whisper. And we pray that as we begin to study this man so we can study uh, the letter you inspired him to write, we just pray that your church would be turned towards you in heart and mind and affections. We bless your name. Amen. Amen. So, so next week, we'll be starting the, uh, a verse-by-verse -verse study through the book of First Peter. So today's sermon, you can, it could kind of serve as uh, an introduction, I guess. Today, on New Year's Eve, we're just going to spend time looking at that letter's author. Um, we want to know who's writing the letter we're going to be studying. We, we want to see what God has done for him. Uh, this is less an introduction to the book of 1 Peter as it is an introduction to the man named Peter, a man whose old life was done away with, a man who was made new, who was granted a new beginning. Knowing what we can about Peter, our brother, this will serve us as we read his mail every Sunday for the next several weeks. We'll be able to hear the words better, knowing that they were written by a man who knew the living hope, who had been born again to it, who had, as John writes in 1 John, he had seen with his eyes, he had touched with his hands the word of life. And it is John, actually, that tells us about the first time Peter meets Jesus, which is where we're going to begin. So John chapter 1, verse 35, we see uh, Jesus meets Peter. Jesus sees Peter, he looks at him, 
and he names him Peter. Before that, he was called Simon. So John chapter 1, verse 35 says, The next day again, John, this is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, verse 36, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Then you skip down to verse 40. It says, One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Remember that phrase in verse 42, Jesus looked at him. We'll remind of this, be reminded of this later. He looked at him and he gave him a new name. Now the significance of that name, Peter, which means rock, won't be fully fleshed out until later on in the story. In Matthew 16, it's when Jesus doubles down on this naming things and explains the significance of the name. But right on the surface, before you get anywhere too deep, you see that there's an authority dynamic. At their first encounter, Jesus names Peter. Now, if you name something, you plan on keeping it. It followed you home and you gave it a name. You got to feed it and care for it now. And Jesus intends on feeding and caring for Peter. Naming something implies ownership and a permanence in the relationship. From the moment Jesus meets Peter, Jesus lays claim on his life. The message of the gospel that Peter and the other apostles would live and die for includes this truth. Christ has come and he has come to you. And this means he lays claim on you. He has authority over you. And this beautiful truth that We'll read in 1 Peter 5, verse 7, He cares for you. Included in our salvation, there is this idea of receiving a new name. Jesus has named you. He has called you his own. Again, we'll look at the significance of what this new name meant for Peter. But we also know that Jesus names us some pretty beautiful things. He calls us saints. That's what we're called over and over in the New Testament. We're called his children, we're called kings and priests. We're called beloved. And he has the authority to call you those things. Peter is named, but in his own story, he has yet to be called as a disciple. That actually happens later in the story. Peter and Jesus become friends. Now you can turn to Luke 5. We're not going to go back to John, so you can make yourself at home in Luke for a little while. Uh, Luke gives the best timeline of the beginning of Jesus's ministry. We read in Luke 4 that after his baptism, Jesus goes into the wilderness. After the wilderness, he goes home to Nazareth. He preaches in Nazareth, is rejected there, and then takes a walk from Nazareth to Capernaum, which is on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. The first place he goes is to the synagogue, and then the second place he goes is to Peter's house. They'd already met, right? They'd already met in John chapter 1. That's Luke 4, 38, Peter's mother-in-law is sick and Jesus heals her and many others in town. All of this happens before Jesus calls Peter to be a disciple, before Jesus had 12 of his closest friends following him around. Jesus is staying with Peter at his house while Peter's running a fishing business. And then it's in Luke 5 where Jesus borrows Peter's boat to use as a pulpit. And he does some preaching. And it's after a long day of preaching which for the fishermen was itself something that took place after a long night of fishing, 
It says that in Luke 5, verse 5. They're in overtime now. They're pulling a double shift. They worked all night, and then Jesus preached all day, and they're going back out. Jesus tells Peter, go out there and try again. Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. In Luke chapter 5, verse 6, it says, And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. And it's at this time when the relationship between Peter and Jesus takes a decided turn. There's a shift. There's a new thing happening. And the old things begin to dissolve. In verse 8 it says, But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter reminds us here of other worshipers we know. He's participating in a tradition that extends a long way in both directions. When, when man encounters a holy God, this is the natural response. Think of Isaiah seeing the, the Lord high and lifted up in Isaiah chapter 6. Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Think of John in Revelation 1.17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Think of Moses at the burning bush covering his face because he was afraid to look upon God. Or Elijah in the cleft of the rock after hearing the still small voice wrapping his face in his cloak. When man encounters God, he seeks a covering. He bows. And God, when encountering man, has provided the covering. And he says, follow me. There's a way for you to lift up your eyes for your redemption draws nigh. The passage in Revelation that I just shared, Revelation 117, John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I'm the first and the last. It's almost the same thing he says to Peter. When Peter says, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, Christ's response in Luke 5 verse 10 is, do not be afraid, for now you will be catching men. Or the way this is stated in Matthew and Mark is probably more familiar. Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And we know that's exactly what Peter did. That's what the new Peter did. That's what he became. He left the nets, he left the catch of fish, and he made this decisive action to follow Jesus. Jesus will say later that anyone setting his hand on the plow and looking back is unworthy of the kingdom. If you're trying to plow a straight line and you're looking behind you, that line's not going to be going straight for very long. Peter responds to this call by setting his hand on the plow. And we'll see that he has trouble keeping his eyes focused on the thing that he should. And that's kind of Peter's story. But initially, he follows Jesus. He leaves all behind. He's the one who will say, where else could we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, on this path that Peter sets out on, there are bumps and unexpected turns. Uh, the plowing doesn't always appear to be in that straight line, and that's what makes Peter such an interesting character to look at, to relate to, to learn from. Peter is a dynamic character. He doesn't stay the same. In fact, he changes quickly from one extreme to the next, from highs to lows. And for Peter, that's kind of what progress looks like. It's not a straight line. It'll, it'll give you whiplash sometimes, just reading about Peter. But this walk that Peter is on, while convoluted and dramatically inconsistent, is a walk he takes with Christ. When we read 1 Peter, we'll be hearing from a man who had been with Christ, not just in like a quiet, kind of 
distant way, but in a flesh and blood, real life kind of way, where one minute Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus responds, yeah, but you're Satan. Like that's their relationship. It's, it's hard. One minute he's walking on, literally walking on water. And the next minute he is sinking. One minute he's saying to Jesus, I will die with you. And the next minute he's saying, I never knew the man. Now I'm going to go through each one of those stories and and give a bit more detail. But what you see is this, uh, this theme of Peter going from confidence to failure. Uh, it's something that's repeated and repeated and repeated, but it's something that Jesus resolves and even reverses unequivocally. It's seen in seed form in the walking on water story. Yeah, Peter falls, and then Jesus saves him. The story doesn't end with Peter drowning, right? Um, it's, most seen, it's seen most clearly after the resurrection, after Peter's greatest sin. Jesus offers him such love and such forgiveness that the greater theme of Peter's life, one of ups and downs, it's marked with failures, but it's not one of failure. The greater theme of Peter's life is one of restoration. And this is Peter's testimony. I would guess it's probably yours too. His testimony is that sometimes it was pretty good and sometimes he was pretty bad. That's the story. But Christ has come and has given you his Holy Spirit who has made the ultimate trajectory of your life one of being rescued. It's not one only of your failing. It is a story. Your story is one of God's faithfulness in the midst of your whatever. Peter's walk with Christ was not straight and smooth in the Gospels, but it was a path that led towards a great end. And Christ walked with him through all of it. He took on Christ's yoke. Jesus was the other one plowing. He's the one that kept the line straight while Peter's eyes went everywhere else. Peter's life is one that shows the saving power of God. It is a life that proclaims the sufficiency of his grace. One of the things we see about Peter in, in all four Gospels, it's very clear in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's that he had a unique position among the disciples, which brings with it, which brought with it a very unique closeness with Christ. It's very clear, very obvious that Peter's the main guy among the 12. It's very likely that he was the oldest among all of them, uh, probably the only one over 25 years old. Um, there's a story about the disciples paying taxes, and Peter and Jesus, it seems, were the only ones required to pay, indicating that the other 11 were too young to be required to pay tax. Wouldn't it be great if you didn't have to pay any taxes until 25? That'd be cool. And you can look at Matthew 17 for that. But among the, among the 12, there's these three guys that are especially close to Jesus, and they get to observe a few special events that the other disciples missed with the little girl, the daughter of, of the ruler of the synagogue. She's raised from the dead. But it's only Peter, James, and John that are invited to witness that event. On the mountain when Jesus is transfigured and, and Moses and Elijah appear, only Peter, James, and John were there. These, these three, they're the inner circle, but Peter's always first among them. He is the leader among the disciples. And we see in Peter the attitude of one who knows he's in the front of the line. He's the guy that goes and walks on water. And you learn something about Peter personally when you read that story. You can read it in Matthew chapter 14, which you can turn to if you'd like. Um, this whole thing about getting out of the boat and walking on the water, it was Peter's idea. He's the one who says, if that's you, Jesus, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus didn't tell him to get out of the boat. It wasn't like the final test or anything. But Peter, he appears to us in the Gospels as one whose desire to follow Jesus, which begins with the leaving of the nets and continues with even leaving the 
the boat behind leaving all. Later on, he tells Jesus, we have left everything for your sake, Matthew 19, 27. Peter appears to us as this guy that is willing to leave all behind in order to follow Christ. Jesus calls Peter out on the water. The disciples are caught in a storm. Jesus is walking on the water. The disciples think he's a ghost. Jesus says, do not be afraid, which is exactly what he had already told Peter that day when he called him to a new life. I think Peter recognized that and took it personally. And Peter says, if that's you, you're the one who tells me not to be afraid. I've heard that before. You've told me that before. If that's you, call me. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. And when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. Beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And this is the familiar Peter story. Walking on water is great. We commend him for his boldness. He asked the right guy to save him, like points there, right? Gold star for that. But he takes his eyes off of Jesus. He sinks, and the Lord, who kindly saves him, instead of asking, are you okay, says, oh, you of little faith. <laughs> now, Peter will have something to say about faith in his letters. He calls the church to stand firm in their faith, 1 Peter 5. He says that your faith is more precious than gold, 1 Peter 1, verse 3. He's, he's not writing those things from the position of an ivory tower academic. He's speaking from experience, as the, the one, the experiences like the one he had had when he was out on the stormy sea of Galilee. By taking his eyes off of Jesus, doubt and fear replaced faith and it nearly cost him his life. Now, when Jesus talks to Nicodemus in Matthew, I'm sorry, John chapter 3, he equates the believing that saves with the looking on Moses' serpent. There's a story from Numbers 21 when whoever looked at this bronze serpent was healed. Okay? And so faith is looking. The story of Peter walking on water makes the same conclusion. While Peter looks at Jesus, he stands. And he'll write to the church in 1 Peter 5, stand firm in the faith. By looking away, he sinks and invites the rebuke of the Lord. Oh, you of little faith. Looking in the wrong way is a lack of faith. Faith is the gaze of the soul upon a saving God. And this faith, which Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 3, is more precious than gold, is valuable in the same way that a life jacket is also more precious than gold. Not more expensive necessarily, but certainly more precious for the drowning man. Again, Peter knew this from experience, because while that was the only time we read of him beginning to literally drown, his head dips beneath the surface metaphorically a couple more times. He goes from walking to sinking. Now, turn to Matthew chapter 16. This is when he says the best thing he had ever said in his life, followed by one of the worst things he had ever said in his life. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, this is uh, Matthew 16, verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Beautiful. This is inspired stuff, literally. Heaven revealing to Peter the true nature of his friend Jesus. It's amazing. We ought to remember that Peter had a closeness with God that is admirable. 
We make a big deal out of his mistakes, for sure. That's low-hanging fruit. But let's not forget that God the Father was whispering things to Peter about his son. And Peter wasn't afraid to say that stuff out loud. I love that. Jesus says, this came from my Father. He gave you this. You didn't think of that on your own. He's speaking to you. Then afterwards, Jesus says some pretty cool stuff about Peter that I think we should read. This is going to shape how we study First Peter, Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He's giving him authority. He's giving him a foundational role in the church. Now, Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, this led Jesus to pronounce him blessed and to make this amazing declaration about his place, Peter's place in the foundation of the church. Now, remember, Jesus had already named him Peter. He had already he named him Peter the first time they met. And maybe for, you know, a year or more, Peter's been thinking, like, why does he call me Rock? Like, why, did, why am I Rocky? Why, why does I, like, they called me Simon growing up, and I don't, I don't get it. But here, he's like, Jesus says, remember when I called you Peter? I've been calling you that for years now, you know, a year or two. This is why. Because I'm going to build my church on a rock. And you, by saying that I'm the Christ, the Son of God, you now know something about how that foundation is going to be built. Now, a lot has been written on this passage. You've probably heard, maybe even I've said it before, that the real rock here is the confession itself. And there's different words used for big rock, little rock. And Jesus isn't saying this stuff about Peter. He's saying it about the message that Jesus is the, the Christ. Okay, big problem with that. I don't think that is the correct way to read this passage, even though maybe I've taught it before. But, you know, people study more and change. The gospel account is written in Greek. And Jesus didn't speak it. So when Jesus was speaking to these disciples, he used one word. There's only one Aramaic word for rock. And he says, you are Peter. You are rock. And I build my church on this rock. He isn't disconnected from his confession by any means. But neither is the confession disconnected from him. The church was not built on a text message. It wasn't built on a, a message that just went out. Peter was a man who preached the gospel. And the gospel is still preached. The church is still built by the message preached by people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The other apostles, their witness, their authority would also be the foundation of the church. Paul says this. Ephesians 2.20 says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The other disciples are also given this authority of keys and binding and loosing. This, this is apostolic authority, which we have in the scriptures. And that is the final authority of the church on earth. That's what that means. But Peter is a rock. His first act now, as one on whom the church would be built, is an act that gains him his least favorite nickname. Uh, a few verses down in Matthew 16, Jesus tells the disciples that he will be arrested, tortured, and killed. And Peter objects, and he takes Jesus aside, and he says, you shouldn't do this. It's a bad plan. And in Matthew 16, verse 23, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Eyes on Jesus, that's faith. Your mind on the things of God, that is faith. His eyes drifted from Christ. His mind drops from the things of heaven to the things of man. 
It's the kind of thing that's already happened on the stormy waters of Galilee. It's the same thing. It's a familiar Peter story. It's not the last time we see something like this. There's perhaps no more important instance of a lapse of faith in the New Testament than Peter's denial of Christ. He's famous for it. You can turn to Luke chapter 22 and see where this is having your mind set on the things of man eventually leads. Peter's denial follows a similar route as the other stories we've mentioned. Peter shows his strength. He shows his boldness, his good intentions, even his spiritual maturity, as in the case of the confession. And then things go south from there. So in the upper room, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, Peter says that he will die with Jesus. Now, he's come a long way at this point, right? Since the day he took Jesus aside and said, you shouldn't go through with that plan. Peter has repented of resisting that plan. And he says, you're going to die? I'm, I'm with you. Even if I have to die with you, I won't deny you. Now, those are big promises. Those good intentions are often shown to be powerless in the day of small things. Peter promised his allegiance, but he couldn't stay and pray with Jesus for one hour in Gethsemane. He slept instead. And none of that was a surprise to Jesus. None of this shocked him. Jesus had told Peter in this conversation about Peter denying Christ. It's Luke chapter 22, verse 31. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That special closeness that Peter had with Jesus shows through even when Jesus is telling Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three, deny three times that you know me. And of course, that's what happens. Jesus is arrested. The disciples scatter. Peter and John follow at a distance, and that distance for Peter gets greater and greater and greater. First, Peter is accused by a servant girl of being one of the disciples. He denies it. Then someone else makes the same accusation. Peter responds the same way. Eventually, he even calls a curse down on himself. And then it happens, it happens again. We'll read Luke 22, verse 60. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Pause. Their first encounter in John chapter 1, at their introduction, it says that Jesus looked at Peter. That's an unnecessary detail, don't you think? I mean, insofar as storytelling goes, we look at things in front of us. We look at people when we're talking to them. It's assumed that people look at each other. So why the detail in John? Repeated here in Luke. I believe that it says Jesus looked at him so that we can know that Jesus saw him. There is a difference between looked at and, you know, seen. There's a difference between having someone just stare at you and having someone see you. Yes, Jesus looked at Peter, but what's more is Jesus saw Peter. And when Peter knew he was seen, it says, And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. That look... Jesus looked at Peter. Peter lived that horror knowing that he had sworn first that he would die for Jesus and then later swore that he never knew Jesus. And Jesus saw it all. Peter denied all association with Christ. Uh, and, and of course, we make a big deal out of the fact maybe that you know, the Holy Spirit hadn't come on Pentecost yet, so Peter wasn't properly armed for this, you might say. 
But the fact remains that he, he apostatized in this moment. He walked away from God. He is walking away from faith. Following at a distance didn't work. It never does. Peter's failings were, his failings before were, were when his eyes drifted from Christ. And what we see in this passage is at the moment of Peter's greatest failure, Jesus didn't stop looking at him. There's the line of the, the song, his eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. We might have had a verse of the hymn that says, his eye is on the sinner. And, and we struggle with that sometimes. Uh, Habakkuk struggled with this idea of God looking on evil. He says, you are purer eyes to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Habakkuk 1.13. Jesus provided an answer to this, this objection of Habakkuk. He does look on the wicked. He looks on them. When our gaze drops, his doesn't. He looks on the sinner with mercy. His grace is greater than all our sin, which enables him to look right at the sinner, knowing that because of his forgiveness, their end is more glorious than they could imagine. We've seen over and over that Peter can't hold his stuff together. Okay, He can't hold things together. But Jesus told him in the upper room, knowing at that moment the depths of his depravity and knowing the sin that Peter was going to commit, a few hours later, he said, Satan wants you, but I prayed for you that your faith would not fail. His faith is the gaze of his soul. And with the confidence that can only come from being God, Jesus then says, when, not if, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He says, when you, you're going to come, you're going to come back. And when you come back, strengthen the brothers. Now, Satan, who wanted to sift Peter, he's not omniscient. He doesn't know the future with the precision that our God does, which means that I bet that he thought for that moment that he was sifting Peter just fine breaking him down piece by piece into tiny grains. But Satan doesn't look at what Jesus is doing while Peter is failing. We know he doesn't. Beholding Christ is not something that interests Satan. I'll guarantee it. And what is Jesus doing while Peter is failing? Jesus is looking at Peter. Every time Peter fails, it's because he gets distracted by something less worthy than Christ. And every time you know, on the water, he looks at the waves instead of the one that made them, but he doesn't sink because Christ never took his eyes off of Peter. When Peter tells Jesus to avoid the cross, it's because his mind was concerned with the things of men rather than the things of God. He's thinking about the things of earth rather than the things of heaven. But even when Jesus calls him Satan, he doesn't altogether stop calling him Peter. He's still the rock and the church, the, the church building is going to uh, the church builder, excuse me, is going to build his church. Peter failed. God doesn't. Peter fails Christ, and Christ doesn't fail Peter. When Peter denies Christ, it's a horrible thing. At the crucifixion, Peter was aware, perhaps more than any, that it was his sins that held him there, as we sang this morning. But this is where Peter's story arc is perfected, right? On the water, he walked, he sunk, and then he was rescued his denial put him under the water again, and Jesus wasn't done rescuing. Peter is restored. Christ was crucified. He was buried. He rose again the third day. We read the lines from Mark 16, verse 7 at Easter. It's the angel at the tomb speaking to the astonished women. Go tell his disciples and Peter 
that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. The resurrection was for sinners like Peter. If death itself isn't permanent, then neither are your failures. If death itself can be reversed, then Peter's sins could be too. What's more, the relationship that sin destroyed, that can be restored as well. On the shores of Galilee, Jesus reaches out to Peter in such a special way. Remember at his calling, when Simon received his new name, Peter, Jesus gave him some fishing advice and then gave him a fishing miracle. In John 21, after the resurrection, Jesus does the same thing. He stands on the shore, calls out to Peter and his friends fishing, and says, try that net on the other side of the boat. For whose benefit was this miracle? It was for Peter. And it's Peter who jumps in the water and swims to shore to go see Jesus. And when Jesus says, bring, bring some of the fish, because he had a, a little coal fire there, right? And there's a few guys in a boat and Jesus. And Jesus says, bring, why don't you bring some fish? Peter who had jumped into the water, he, he hauls in all 153 fish, which should have broken the net but didn't, brings the whole catch up onto shore. These are the actions of a forgiven sinner. Peter, with all of creation, is groaning and straining for that final redemption. And the one he loves says, can I have a few fish? And Peter says, I'll give you every fish. You have all the fish. The forgiven sinner gives all because they know they owe all and having encountered the goodness of a savior like Jesus, they know he is worthy of it all. And Peter and Jesus have breakfast. And Jesus doesn't mention, he doesn't mention Peter's denial. He doesn't mention, he doesn't make any rooster jokes, you know, at breakfast. He doesn't, he doesn't mention Peter's sin or any of the disciples. They had all failed that night, right? When each one of them left him to his doom, Jesus doesn't bring that up. What does he do instead? He eats with them. He's still making the same invitation under the same terms. Why do we eat with Jesus every Sunday? Because we are the forgiven sinners whom Jesus invites to breakfast. And it's at this meal where Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Three times, right? Three times. And to, to Peter's exasperation, he, sa he says, do you love me? And when Peter says, yes, 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 he says, well, then feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And the letter of 1 Peter, which we'll begin next week, is one of the results of Peter's obedience to these calls, to these commandments. The letters of 1 and 2 Peter are pastoral letters. They're shepherding letters where Peter, a man who certainly knew the value of faith, and the importance of keeping one's focus on the Lord, he would build up the flock of God by telling them the great value of their faith. After the resurrection, Peter's life is different. He's still Peter. He's the rock, but this time he stays awake for the prayer meeting. And it was at a prayer meeting 50 days after Easter on Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes and rests on 120 disciples, a rushing wind, tongues of fire. Shortly after this, Peter preaches a sermon about his friend Jesus who forgave his sins. And he says that he is both Lord and Christ. Because the first time he said that, it worked out real well for him. And so he's going to preach that message. And he preaches this to thousands of people in Jerusalem. In Acts 2.37, it says the hearers were cut to the heart. And they asked Peter and the other disciples, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
And in what we call the Apostles' Creed, we confess that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. I don't know how much the actual apostles like Peter had to do with the writing of that, but we know that this was their creed and confession. Peter believed in the forgiveness of sins. He preached the forgiveness of sins. And it says, so those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. These are the living stones Peter will write about. And they were brought into the church like a bunch of fish in a strong net by Peter the rock. When we start the book of 1 Peter next week, we're hearing from a man who knew Jesus. But one of the reasons why he knew Jesus so well is not just because they spent a lot of time together. It's because Jesus restored him from such depths with such tenderness. We'll be hearing from a man who had failed his God, who was weak, fickle, treacherous, but who loved Jesus. And what's more was loved by Jesus, cared for by Jesus, fed by Jesus. When his eyes left his Savior, his Savior's eyes remained on him. When he denied Christ, Christ did not deny him. Before we get to any of Peter's words, the letter or anything, we're, we're here to rejoice on the last day of the year and the grace that is greater than all our sins. These next words were written by Paul, but the apostolic message could have been written by Peter just as well. They shared one word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ has called you and he has not relented in this calling. He has not regretted calling you, naming you, commissioning you. He knows our need to our weakness is no stranger, or as another song goes, he knows the depths of my heart and he loves me the same. Knowing the welcoming arms of Jesus who makes us breakfast, Peter could preach the message of repentance with boldness, knowing the sweetness that follows. He preaches this in Acts chapter 3. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. These are things that Peter knows. These are things we want to know. So we're going to spend our time in the book of 1 Peter, following the rock, listening to his encouragement to stand fast in faith that fixes our eyes on the Savior who loves us and calls us and names us and restores us and forgives our sins. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we rejoice humbly in the beauty of your forgiveness extended towards Peter that we know is extended and offered to us as well. We thank you for your gentleness and tenderness towards the sinner. And we who know our need, we are poor, blind, hungry, and naked. We come to you to fulfill all of these needs and more. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We pray that you would fix our eyes on you, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We look to you believing. We gaze at you with the eyes of faith. You are beautiful, Lord Jesus. We love you. Amen. Amen. Please stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise
Father, Son, and 